James is an especially powerful book of the Bible uh, for a lot of reasons, but more than anything, the fact that the author is a half-brother of Jesus. He is the son of Mary and Joseph and grew up in the same house with Jesus. So experiencing Jesus firsthand would cause it to be that if anyone was ever able to give us insight and say, ah, it was all a charade, it was all fake, I knew Jesus, he was just like the rest of us, there was nothing miraculous about him, you know, mom and dad were goofing around as teenagers and she got pregnant and they made up this big story. Right? James would be the one to be able to tell us that. Those arguments between Mary and Joseph, those discussions in the house no one else was aware of, he would be aware of those things. None of that comes out. In fact, the opposite. Look at the first words. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the way the, the uh, Greek language works when it says bond servant of god and of the lord jesus christ that's one and the same it isn't saying i am the bond servant of god and also of the lord jesus christ it's saying i am a bond servant of god who is the lord jesus christ the greek grammar is such that you're talking about one and the same i always use the illustration of my wife in regard to this. She is my wife and the daughter, or excuse me, the mother of my children, one in the same. There isn't a distinguishing mark. So here, number one, James, the stepbrother of Jesus Christ, calls himself a bond servant of Jesus Christ, the Lord, God, Jesus Christ. That's potent. When this man is telling us this understanding of his relationship, consider the term bondservant. Uh, servants were one thing, more along the lines of employment. You had a debt that needed to be covered, and you would agree with someone, I'll come work for you for, let's say, you know, three years, and you're going to give me food and shelter, so I'm you know, room and board, you're going to supply for me, and also you're going to supply me with, you know, just for a number, $20,000. I'm going to work for you for three years. You're going to give me food and clothing and shelter and $20,000. Cover my debts. Pay, pay for this or pay for that. So it was employment. A bond servant was a person that either had a debt so big or they had worked for a particular master and come to know and respect him that he wanted to work for him forever. He would sell himself into being a servant of that individual for the rest of his life. A bond servant was now bound to that master and that household for the remainder of his life. James refers to himself as the bond servant of Jesus Christ. That's remarkable. For someone that grew up with Jesus Christ, Witness Jesus Christ's life firsthand. 
He binds himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. Listen, I love, you know, my oldest brother when he was alive. You know, I'm the youngest of three, the middle brother, Andy. I love Andy, but I'm never going to refer to myself as his bond servant. You know what I'm saying? I was their science experiment a lot of the times, man. They were blowing me up and wrecking me and just, I was the stunt man. And most of the things that they were trying to figure out. The, 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 you, you think I'm exaggerating. The summer of 1976, there were four hospitalized head injuries between the three of us. I mean, the doctor literally told my mother, if, if I didn't know you better, I would report you. You know, there were broken bones and catastrophes all along the way. I would never refer to either one of those men as being my master. You know, I mean, I was one of the three stooges. You know what I'm saying? I just, I'm not going to, anyway. Bond servant, remarkable, remarkable. He goes into this introduction and he tells us, he's speaking to the 12 tribes which are scattered all over the world. At this point, the persecution has become so great that the, the nations of Israel have just scattered out of Israel. He gives us uh, great instructions about how the trials that we experience cause maturity in us uh, there, beginning in verse 2. And how with those trials, uh, we need to learn to rely upon the Lord for wisdom and growth and maturity. He talks about the temptations that we endure and how those trials and temptations prove us out. They show us our strength. And they show us our weakness. You think you're doing good till you come under the test. And then when you fail, you realize that's how strong you really were. It's great insight throughout all of this. And then, of course, in verse 19 of chapter 1, he starts that great exhortation about hearing and doing the word. They have to be coupled together. Can't just be that you're a person that goes to church a lot. Because going to church a lot, going to church every service and just hearing the word doesn't mean a blessed thing. You've got to be a doer of the word also. He even points out, if you're merely a hearer of the word, you've deceived yourself. That's, that's a very pointed way. This is a guy who's learned this from living with Jesus. Seeing firsthand the ministries and the method of Jesus Christ. Then he moves into chapter 2. And he starts this discussion about the sin of partiality. Of looking at certain people and thinking, oh, well, because they're you know, good in business and make lots of money and have this or that, that's the special person. That's the one I want to align myself with. That's the one. And he points out, king of all creation was a humble servant. Again, having witnessed it firsthand. James has a greater understanding than this, than anyone else. You know, Peter. people point at Peter as though he were the leader of the church. And when you get to Acts chapter 15, Peter is answering to this man right here. There's great division in the church, and they've called all the leaders of the church into Jerusalem for what we now refer to as the Jerusalem Council. And as the whole thing is unfolding, this man is the one who is saying how the church should conduct itself, and Peter is answering to him. 
This was the leader of the church. If there was a pope, there was no pope. Don't get me wrong. There was no pope. If there was a pope, James was it. James led the church. He taught the church. He's a powerful man, and he's saying partiality, tremendous sin. You're looking around at this person and that person and that person and thinking, this is the one I want to align myself with. Jesus Christ was not one that people, you know, flocked to and, and enjoyed. They wanted the miracles. They wanted those things. But as they came up and they were like, yeah, Jesus is going to be my best friend. He's like, you can just get away from me because all you want is free lunch. He was a scathing rebuke to people very often. Oh, I'll follow you anywhere, Master. Really? Go sell everything you have and then come follow me. Jesus, Jesus was difficult. He was a man that was hard. Hard to take, hard to understand. And James is saying, you want to be very careful how you judge people. Because you could literally be looking Jesus, the creator of all things in the faith, all things in existence, and think, there's nothing about this man that I like. Partiality from a worldly sense. Faith without works is dead. He begins in verse 14 of chapter 2. Gives us great explanation of how you, know, you can say that you're full of faith, that you know, if you aren't working that out in your flesh, if it isn't actually being seen working in your flesh, then your faith is useless. Talk, talk, talk all you want to if it's not being accompanied with the real behavior of faith, then it's dead. There's, there's nothing there to support it. Which comes to chapter 3, where I want to dwell. Verse 1, he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we, referring to the teachers, shall receive a stricter judgment. Now that judgment is twofold. The stricter judgment. The stricter judgment is, first of all, here on earth. If you stand up to teach God's word, brace yourself. Because the judgment is coming from those you're teaching. The world around you will level itself right at you. If you're going to say, this is how you should live, the world's going to say, are you living that way? They're going to have a much more stern view of you. Secondly, there is a stricter judgment having stood up and been the teacher of the flock. You're going to have to answer to the one who owns the flock, God himself. No, I have to answer for the health of this flock, the things that go on here, the, the, even the interpersonal relationships in the flock, the way one sheep is treating other sheep. You know, it, it, it would be nice to just say, eh, that's not, not my business. In the end, it is my business. You know, and if somebody gets disgruntled and says, I don't want to be part of this flock anymore, and they leave, and they're going to go be part of another flock, it's my responsibility to notify the shepherd in that flock 
of the health of the sheep that's coming from this pasture to that pasture. If this sheep here has some poisonous, bitter attitude that's highly contagious, you go from here to there and infect that flock, you can guarantee that shepherd's going to call me up and say, what the heck did you send me? I have to be responsible. It's a difficult thing. Let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For if we all, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. If you can keep yourself from stumbling with your mouth. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey, and we turn the whole body. He gives these illustrations. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds. They are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, right? One spark. One little spark. Oh, my goodness. Years ago, I was down... Um, I was outside Warren. Um, I guess I was down to Warren. Yeah, I was, I guess maybe it was in Warren. I was working on a tower site and uh, I had to cut up this rebar and, uh, you know, throw the rebar on the ground, take the chop saw out, fire up that thing and just cut away across this metal. And, you know, just got to cut up like six pieces. So, make those cuts and I'm going to do the bends with the rebar tool in a minute. And I take those and throw those over there and I walk over and it's been like 10 minutes since I made the cut and my radio that I'm wearing suddenly just comes to life. And my boss who's up on the tower is just freaking out. And by the time I can finally understand what he's saying about where to look, I turn around and there is a huge blaze. The sparks off the chop saw right there in the grass. I mean, when we got it all put out later, you know, every fire extinguisher on the site and every guy on the site with shovels and rakes and just everybody going crazy. I mean, it's in the woods, man. We've, we've burned off, you know, quarter of an acre just crazy moment just fire the saw up and just run it through these few things all of that fire like an arrowhead pointed right back to that spot where i'd cut those just the sparks flying out behind literally like a wedge everything just went from there gotta burn the stinking state down you know what i'm saying <laughs> just nutty you know, never even noticed. I mean, I'm, you know, the smoke from the saw, you get two-stroke oil, and you just, you know, big old loud Husqvarna, bah, make your cuts, and, you know, set the saw down, grab the stuff, and walk away. Fire was probably going right then. 
as I walked away. How careless people are with their tongues. Just fling around a few things in the wrong environment where people's hearts catch fire and spread the fire. And now you're quite a ways away in time and space and you're having a conversation with somebody and as you listen, you can hear that points right back to there. Somebody's mouth. It's interesting. What a great forest a little spark kindles. Think about California right now. Just up in flames, man. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. That's quite a remark right there. From a man who lived in the same household as Jesus in his adult years, having seen the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and now in the maturity of the church, is saying with an absolute surety, you know what fuels the human tongue more than anything? It's hell itself. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen people say things to others that they could not possibly understand how deeply damaging what's coming out of their mouth is to the person who it's hitting. But I simultaneously know that, that the Holy Spirit is telling them, stop, don't say this, and they're doing it anyway. The power of the tongue. It's something we want to be very, very aware of. 3 verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile, creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. You know, the critics want to say, Oh, well, this or that has, yeah, whatever. It's possible. You know how I know? Every creature can be. Because the scripture just said so. Isn't it amazing to see these colossal creatures brought under the authority of mankind? To be obedient. It's astonishing to see the level of obedience that can be created in the animal kingdom. So remarkable to see how the human race can tame the animal kingdom. But no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. It's an unruly evil. No man can, in a way, that's actually comforting, right? Because every one of us reads how if we could tame our tongue. And we think, oh gosh, I'm failing so miserably. And then James tells us, you can't. We can tame the entire animal kingdom, but you can't tame your tongue. You can't tame your tongue. He says here, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude, the image, the parallel of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, 
These things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Listen, I've had a critic say to me that he was a scientist and had studied these things, and in fact, springs do at times send forth both fresh water and mineral water or salt water at the same time. And he thought he had me on the hooks at that point. And I was trying to explain to him, well, it might be so, but in the end, it's not fresh water anymore, is it? Because the salt water has polluted the fresh water. So it's just a salt water spring. And he was like, oh, well, yeah, okay. It, it, it is a destroyed thing when that's the case. And that's what the Lord is saying here. You know, the example, can a fig tree bring uh, my brethren bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. It's, it's one or the other. The thing is tainted or untainted. If we can tame our tongue, if we can, then James is telling us that we have an ability of self-control that is above anything else. If we can tame our tongue. It's so important. He says in verse 13, Who is wise? And understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, I want you to notice this and just think through it as slowly as you can and let all that we've been through in introduction and then in this beginning of this chapter kind of stand out as we read verse 14. But if you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above but is earthly, sensual, demonic. That's heavy to think about. When I have been with people, and you finally get to the place where you realize what's going on in their heart and mind is they've got their own agenda They've got their own thoughts. They've got their own mission. And they're trying to accomplish their will. Self-seeking. And that causes a bitterness and an envy. Because if things aren't going their way, then it's grating on them. In the center of it is the self-seeking. And on the other end of it is the speech, the boasting about if only they, why can't we, the lying. 
the self-seeking in the middle of that. And then I move down, you know, and recognize it's not wisdom that creates this thing. Which is often what's portrayed in the bitterness and the envy and the self-seeking is I'm the wise one here in this circumstance. I see things clearer than anybody else does. And in that, here we are told that that does not come from the Lord. It's at best of the earth, you know, of the flesh somehow. It's, it's just of this fallen kingdom, sensual, and then perhaps even demonic. That's frightening. That within the church, he's having to say, watch out for this. Don't, don't let this. Remember that he started this whole thing, you guys, by saying, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. This is the same subject as he moves into the tongue and its effect in the church and you get all the way down to the end where he's saying it's earthly, sensual, demonic. Why? Because what does this create? This creates division. This is the thing that destroys the church, destroys the body of Christ, tears at people's hearts. It's not from the Lord. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, wants to make peace, wants to put out the fires, wants to end the squabbling, gentle, willing to yield. It's amiable. You can discuss with the person what is needed. Full of mercy, and not wrath, and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. You're not going to find in that person or in those circumstances over here bitterness, anger, and rage, and then over here, you know, teaching God's word. You're going to find a consistency. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I had a discussion with a man years ago about, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. And I pointed out to him, look, being a peacemaker implies there's work involved, right? It doesn't say, blessed are those who stumble into peace. Blessed are those who accidentally fall upon peacefulness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Sometimes, as Paul says elsewhere, that requires someone to go and say, hey, stop talking like this. Stop thinking like this. Stop saying these things. Bringing an end to things in order to create peace. Sometimes to create peace, you've got to deal with the confrontation so that peace will be the result. The person who wants peace, they're going to be gentle, willing to yield. 
they're going to listen and go, oh, yeah, see, I didn't even understand that part. Now that you've told me, that totally makes sense. They're going to be gentle, peaceable, willing to yield. It's so interesting that our enemy clamors and claws in the way he does. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members, inside your body? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have, because you do not ask. You do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. I, me, mine, the things I want. Whenever, whenever that's my mindset, then I'm already steering the whole thing off course. I'm already headed in directions that I shouldn't be headed at all. You know, when I'm following after my own desires, I'm already destroying the work of the Lord. Let's go over to Galatians from the book of James to chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. The, the flesh is headed one direction and the spirit's headed the other direction and it's a head-on collision every single time. These two things will not just sort of miss one another and the flesh gets to go off and do what it wants and the spirit says, oh, no big deal, and you know goes and does spiritual things. The minute that we begin to walk in the flesh then we run headlong into the spirit because they're at war with one another. That's more literally how this is being described. The flesh is against the spirit. Verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. These are contrary, at war with one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Isn't, isn't that an apt description? the things we want to do, and we get so frustrated within ourselves, these things don't come about. Why? Because we're walking in the flesh and, and at war within the spirit within ourselves. I just um, heard a minister say again recently, he was talking to a large group of Christians. I was present in this person said, you know, a lot of you guys uh, feel very condemned, thinking that God 
doesn't accept you. You have all kinds of failures and struggles in your life, and you have that sense that God doesn't love you. I just want to reassure you, he said, of what Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And the whole audience said amen. And then he went on to talk about how Christ just loves us. He accepts us right where we're at. In my mind, I'm sitting in the seat thinking, you quoted half the verse. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you say you're in Christ, but you're walking in the flesh, there's going to be condemnation. Oh, I'm not talking from the Lord. I'm talking within our own heart. These two things slam into one another so headlong that you're going to walk away feeling guilty. If you're pursuant of the flesh and trying to say, I'm walking in the Spirit, there's not going to be any peace internally. These two things are at war with one another. You're going to feel self-condemned until you relinquish the flesh and begin to walk in the Spirit. When we're hearing what Paul says in Galatians, and he's you know, encouraging us to walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, for the flesh lusts, against the spirit the spirit against the flesh these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish you know you read romans chapter 6 and paul is you know saying there what then shall we continue to sin that grace may abound how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death that the flesh should die, that we should live in a newness of life. He says that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we should walk in a newness of life. And you get to chapter 7 and he's you know, saying, oh, you know, the things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things that I wish I was doing, I am, you know, I'm just torn inside. And he, he gets to that buildup and says, oh, you know, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? From this body of death. Oh, that's an interesting point. The body of death. Uh, we There's still argument as to whether it was a real thing or if it was just a thing of myth and legend. But there is a Roman account that they would have a form of execution where if someone was a particularly murderous you know, heinous murderer, they would take a human corpse and they would bind it to their back. So just as you are, your four members, this thing would be clasped to you. And as it decomposed, you would decompose. That was your death sentence. It was referred to, whether it was true or not, I've Still not been able to find any real accounts that that was an actual thing. But it was a common description of the body of death. 
a body affixed to you that would be your form of execution. How hideous a thought that is. That's not going to be an instant death. That's going to be a very long process as that thing decomposes on you and its decomposition kills you. And that's what Paul is saying. He gets to the end of Romans chapter 7 and he's saying, who is going to save me from this body of death? Do we not feel like that sometimes? Like, why, why, why do I do this? And then he gives that proclamation. Thank God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to save us from that. And are we not permanently affixed to this body of death? We live inside it. It's daily decomposing, taking us down with it. And we are receiving the message that Christ is our deliverance from it. And that's why I get so wound up about somebody saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you leave off that they walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because that decomposition of the flesh is going to be a very powerful, what a, what a freakish, nightmarish thing to have that decomposing corpse attached to your brain. It gives me the willies every time I think about it. Christ has delivered us. He has already delivered us from it. You read in James chapter 3, and all of those complaints and challenges and difficulties of the tongue and the difficulties of Christ, that's the flesh. That's the flesh. We need to be freed from that. Galatians, here, you're not going to be able to do the things you wish as long as you're following after the flesh. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And again, so many misinterpret that. right? I'm led by the Spirit. I'm not under the law, so therefore I can drink this beer. I'm not a legalist. I'm not under the law. No, no, there's a law that says you must drink the beer. There's a law that says you're a human being, and I'm about to read it to you. You're a human being, and therefore you will like drunkenness. And so, at some point in our lives, almost all of us, the flesh says, hey, why don't we try that out? And then we go down that road to some degree or another. We pursue the things of the flesh. And that is the law he's referring to. The law of sin and death. He's not talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the law of sin and death. That corpse that's trying to kill us. That law of our flesh, which wants to decompose us and bring us to the grave. He says, in Christ, we're not under that law anymore. Those who are led by the Spirit are not under that law. We've been delivered from it. And then he gets to the point of, now the works of the flesh are evident. And, and the t real term is obvious. You can't miss them. They're plain as day. You know, Not so much here, but more right in this region. Right? 
where you know you can feel like nobody's noticing that all of this is welling up in you, but there's an obviousness to it. The work of the flesh is obvious. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. All of those are referring to the sexual. And he starts the list off with the sexual. Because honestly, more than anything, that comes natural to the human being. The lewd jokes, the uncleanness, the sexual impurity. This isn't just you don't like to wash your hands or take showers. This is about the fact that there is a filthiness to our soul. Now, I've been around those who claim to be Christians and yet want to share dirty jokes. There's a conflict there. These two things don't work. You cannot put these two things in the same environment. <clears throat> My mother was an LPN years ago. She worked as a scrub nurse in surgery. She went to school in New York and trained by hardcore nuns in the medical industry. And, you know, she looks back and just talks about she was so fearful leaving Aroostook, Maine and going out there to go to school, traveling by train and getting there. And here were these very stern, intimidating nuns. And she learned over time in that school that those nuns were especially concerned about the health and welfare of their patients. And they weren't going to let anybody interfere with the health and welfare of their patients. They were polite and as kind as could be, but when it came down to the practical work of their nursing, they were professionals. In particular, there was an occasion where there was a charge nurse who was setting up for a surgery my mother was going to be involved in. And one of those overseeing nuns came in, and her rank as a nurse was far above anybody else in the room. And the instruments for surgery were not cleaned to her specifications. And an argument ensued between the nurse who was lying them out, who had a certain degree of authority, and the nun who was overseeing the whole thing, who had her degree of authority, and the nun in authority finally just scooped all of that rate up and dumped it all into the dirty bin, which now it's all got to be re-cleaned no matter what, and said very loud to everyone there, sterile filth, I've never heard of such a thing. She was looking at the instruments, and in her mind, they were filthy. And the other nurse is saying, they've been through the autoclave. They're sterile. There can't possibly be anything wrong with them. And her summary was, sterile filth. There's no such thing. Certain things don't go together, you know what I'm saying? 
You don't want to see the guts of the last procedure on the scalpel that's about to open you up. You know what I'm saying? I don't care if it's been sterilized. These things don't belong in the same environment. You say you walk in the spirit, and yet you're telling foul jokes. These things don't line up. This isn't of the same world. They're obviously of the flesh. It's of the flesh. They're contrary to one another. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Then he moves into idolatry, sorcery, you know, spiritual problems, false teachings, you know, and, and false gods. Sorcery, you know, finding spiritual states of existence through potions and, you know, drugs and drug use. Hatred. Hatred, right? What is uh, John saying later? You, know, you say you love God but hate your brother? That can't be true. That can't be true at all because you, you haven't ever seen God, but you can see your brother. If you can see your brother and you hate him, but you've never seen God, then the, the contradiction is obvious. You have to have a love for the body of Christ. Hatred shouldn't be part of our state of existence. Contentions, fighting, fighting, squabbling, back and forth, that, that can't be right. That's not of the Spirit. Jealousies, you know, and we're talking about ungodly jealousies. There's a godly jealousy that even the book of James refers to, of how God loves us with a jealousy. He doesn't want anything else to interfere with it, right? You love your children with a jealousy. You're not going to let anybody else harm your spouse because of the love and the godly jealousy you have. They belong to you. They're yours. This is the jealousy of, I want what you got. Contention. Envy. Outbursts of wrath. Fly into a rage. Lose control, break things? This is not of God. This is not the Spirit. Selfish ambitions. Wow, he's getting detailed here. Yourself above anything else. Selfish ambition. Your ambition for you name it outshines everything else. Selfish ambition. Dissensions, that actually covers a large, it's the idea of arguments and fighting, but it covers a broad spectrum. Deterioration would be the broadest idea. To descend, you know, the conversation descends into a fight. The relationship descends, you know, and fights are usually part of that. Dissension, to, to, to disagree and cause problems and divide, dissensions. Heresies, false teachings. You know, I hear people talking about, you know, uh, different false teachers and heretics and the idea of, you know, where does that come from? Did, were they around this false teaching? Were they around that false teacher? Did this demonic thing influence them? You don't have to do anything other than be in the flesh. And you can come up with heresies, false teachings, right? You don't have to go study with some group of demonic weirdos on you know a hilltop far away in order to come up with heresies. You, know, you can just sit and of your own imagination create things that aren't biblical. You can 
create a false teaching by not being in subjection to the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, envy, desiring what someone else has. Murders, quite obviously. Drunkenness, so unfortunate that so many people that claim to be Christians are involved in drunkenness. Revelries, parties, you know, the celebration of riotous behavior, revelries, and the like. You know, so if I'm missing any, you know, and they sort of fall along these lines, just plug them in here anywhere is what he's saying. You know, you get the picture. It's obvious. For some people, it's not, right? You can read that long list to them, and then there's something that is of the flesh that isn't listed here, and you and everybody else in the room is going, yeah, that would be of the flesh, and they're like, no, it's not. I participated in it. No, it really is. You know, if it's of the like, if it's of this brand right here, then it's of the flesh. The flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. But, you know, this whole thing he's going to tell us. The fruit of the spirit. So this revelry is the like of which I tell you beforehand. Just as I also told you in time past. That those who practice, now I want to be clear about that, right? Because Tuesday of this week might have been a horrible day for you. And most of those verses might have been your whole state of existence for a better part of the day or the whole day. And you got to the end of the day and realized what a knucklehead you were and fell on your face. And prayed and went to bed. And joy came in the morning as you spent time with the Lord in the Word, in the quiet. And you started to walk in the Spirit again. Okay? You live in the flesh, so you're going to have to contend with the flesh. And the flesh is going to rear its ugly head. And if, I, like, nobody's spouse called me about Tuesday, so I don't have, like, I just threw that one out there. I'm just making it up here, okay? Um, we have bad days is my point. And we might have been in the flesh. And then the realization of where we were and the restoration of the spirit. When we said, I'm going to walk in the spirit and we forsook those things, you know? So when we are reading this, those who practice such thing, the idea there is how do I get better at this? practicing it those who practice such things right you know you know people that like you know they golf and they're like man you know it's it's my tee off that's just terrible i gotta go to the driving range i gotta really work on my distance i gotta improve this i've got to practice the long range shot and get better at this because I'm hooking and slicing and just I need that nice long as I possibly can achieve straight shot down the fairway. I got to practice this or maybe it's your short game. You know, you got to practice. You're going to get up on the greens and you can just work on those short shots. Maybe it's, you know, tennis and your, your backhand is just terrible. You know, you can 
rush the net and drive it over all you want. But, boy, when you got to reach over there to the opposite side and bring the ball back across, just, your backhand's terrible. you got to you know, work on the grip and the form. and You're, you're practicing. You're practicing. In this case, practicing the work of the flesh. <laughs> you know? Yes, I had an outburst of wrath and lost my mind and flew into a rage and everybody was frightened of me, but I didn't win the argument. So next time I lose my mind, I'm going to have to do it like this so that I win. We're practicing. You know, yes, I was engaged in that sexual sin, but I got busted. I got caught. And we've got to work out a way that that doesn't happen. So how do I practice this sin so that I don't end up in trouble? Practicing. That's literally what's being implied here. The person who's, right? As believers living in a body made of flesh, you're going to turn around and flesh is going to have reared its ugly head and you're going to go, well, obviously I was in the flesh right there and it's time to get rid of that and walk in the Spirit. I make a big deal of it because we read these things and we think, oh, I'm a terrible human being. I have done these things. And then we read, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we go, well, forget it. Because every now and then, I do completely flake out. Yeah. Now, the thing I should be able to say of any believer is that's becoming less and less for each one of us. Amen? No? Look back when you first surrendered your life to Christ. Surely today must be very different than then. Amen? Amen. Okay? Surely every one of us today wants perfection in our life. We want to be completely free of these things. But the process and the progress is what we need to focus on. You know, this, this life we have with the Lord, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice. Some people practice and don't even know they're practicing it. They live this way, and every time you talk to them, that's who they are. And man, they are getting better at it. And better and better at sinning. At living that way. It's interesting for me. I suspect it's similar for you. You know, in the beginning, there were those big things that were just staring me in the face. And I started to attack those. And over time, they wilted away. And the Lord dealt with them. And they were gone. And I was like, hooray, I'm free. And then the Lord went, what about this? And I was like, darn it. And you defeat a bunch of that, and then you kind of get to the place where, like, sort of defeated yourself. Like, I'm never going to get rid of the flesh. I'm going to be contending with this for the rest of my life. When you finally hear the truth in your ear, the voice says, yes, you are. And that's what victory looks like. Contending with the flesh the rest of your life and always winning. Upward climb, greater improvements, 
less of the flesh, more of Christ. Walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. This is the victory that we have. This is the life in Christ. Look at verse 22. In contrast, but the fruit. Now I got to do this again for us. Notice, singular, one, one fruit. The fruit of the spirit. Back in verse 19, the works, plural, right? Plural, why? Because some of us might have idolatry and sorcery as part of our history, but never adultery nor fornication. Others of us might have outbursts of wrath and selfish ambition, but never did we have heresies or idolatry. It's a multifaceted thing that the flesh does. So, there are all kinds. That's why he ends with, and stuff like that. Right? Because our flesh is sinful. There are all kinds of works of the flesh. There is one fruit of the Spirit. One. The fruit of the Spirit is love. End of discussion. That's the deal. You've heard me say it so many times. You know where I'm about to head. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Number one, for God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Number two, as a result of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to care about people. Selfish ambition is going to go away because you're going to think about your neighbor in the way you think about yourself. I've noticed that so-and-so I work with every day really kind of is having a tough time and if i think about it they take cream in their coffee so when i get my coffee i'm picking them up a coffee and you show up and go hey hope your day goes better and you hand them a coffee right the love that christ is creating in you causes you to love someone else the same way you would have loved yourself you begin to think of others right so love number one the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. Love for God, love for others. Then when we read in this, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are actually all adjectives of the love. That's the way the Greek language lays it out. There is one fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit of the Spirit is going to have joy in it, right? I think we've all met Christians that are convinced they're filled with love. And yet, you know, if you talk to them, it's more like they have the gift of discouragement. The joy is absent. They're like, you know, what's wrong, man? Nothing's wrong. This is the way every believer should look. You know what I'm saying? It's a terrible world. It's a terrible life, and we should all be depressed about it. Not so. The love for the Lord that causes us to love our neighbor as ourselves creates a joy in us. It creates peace. If there's not peace, we're distressed. I think we all know people, maybe we've been people, who thrive on chaos. Aren't they a joy to be around? 
You don't know what I'm talking about? Come on, surely you do. You've been around people that unless there's just an absolute whirlwind of debris flying around them, they're not content. Right? Just as you're like thinking, hey, things have been peaceable. They show up and they got to explain to you why it's all chaos. And this happened and I stirred up that and I created this problem and then that person got involved in this and it's just, it's just like, wow. Am I back in grade school where it's just drama all day? Can we? The, the life of the believer who's filled with the spirit is going to be like, I have to create peace. There must be, I can't handle this chaos. I do not want to live this way. They're constantly trying to get things peaceable. So, some people, boy, I'll tell you what, working with drug addicts and alcoholics, a lot of the times those people have lived in that environment so long that it's like if everything's gone fine for three months, they just got to pull the pin on the grenade. They can't handle it. And then everything just flies apart. And then it's like, oh, they're content. Now that everybody's bleeding, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's, it's not right. The person filled with spirit wants peace. Long-suffering. Suffers for a long time. We, we summarize it in certain translations as being patient. That's true. It's true, but it, it does more accurately mean suffering for a long time. The person that's filled with the Spirit is going to be capable of it. They're going to be able to suffer for a long time. I like the fact that he couples that with kindness, right? Because I don't know about you, I realized I was not getting this when I went from suffering for a long time, thinking that I was being very patient, and then finally exploding on everyone. And I would do that over and over. Suffer for a long time, be patient in my own mind, and then explode on everyone. And suffer for a long time and be patient in my own mind, and then explode on everyone. I wasn't adding kindness to it. I, I was not even really being patient, was I? The suffering for a long time, these people are annoying. Right? Life is horrible. And you meet them and think, surely they're going to be embittered. And all they want to talk about is the joy of the Lord and how fulfilling Christ is in their life. <laughs> Just, Rebecca, send me this little meme you know on my cell phone the other day maybe it was from zach but it's harrison ford not harrison ford it's uh who was the who produced the passion mel gibson mel gibson during the filming of the passion he's sitting in a lounge chair outside in a little shady spot with like iced tea and he's talking to the man who played the part of jesus christ in full makeup, right? He's all bloodied and crowned of thorns and just absolutely shredded, right? You know, they must have been working on the actual crucifixion scene. That guy's like kneeling down talking to him, right? Mel Gibson's sitting in his armchair with his iced tea, sort of looking away from the actor talking. And, you know, the meme is something to the nature of me talking to the Lord about how tough my day has been. 
we we think we've suffered, you know, and really, what have we endured? You know, an annoying co-worker that we walk away, you know, embittered at them, just hoping for some way we're never going to have to deal with them again. You know, maybe they'll get transferred. Yeah. Maybe I could transfer them. You know, I just, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. You know, we, we, we suffer for a long time and then we're not kind. No, the, the spirit, and isn't it amazing when it actually happens? Isn't it amazing when we've endured and endured and then there's actually kindness coupled with that? We're like astonished at ourselves. I can't believe it. I actually have compassion for this person. I don't want to just stab them anymore. You all laugh because you know it's true. Because the flesh is present, plotting murder. Christ in his spirit gives us that goodness, just plain old goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. It is in that category caption of love self-control boy a lot of people describe i have no self-control what am i going to do you need the holy spirit you need to be baptized in the holy spirit you'd have self-control against such things there is no law if the world would behave this way if i would behave this way then nothing condemns me. Those who are Christ's have, past tense, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've already done it. It's already gone. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit, right? Because that's a law of the contradiction. People say, oh, yeah, I'm born again. Christian spirit filled, but right here, I'm just not doing it. Paul says, no, if you're born again and filled with the spirit, then you must be doing it. It has to be present. And then what an odd thing that he ends this by saying, let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Think you're walking in the Spirit versus the flesh? Don't think too highly of yourself. Right? Because that's usually where it blows up at our face. It's just as I get thinking, would you look at this guy? There I am. <laughs> wow, oh, that's me. Okay. It is a gracious thing that Christ would ever give us his spirit. That he would allow us to take on his personality, his character, and his attributes. What a wonderful thing that he would claim us as his own. That when we have self-control, we would be able to act like it was our own. How could it actually ever be self-control when what we're talking about is spirit control? Right? 
he takes his spirit away, and we get to see just exactly how much self-control we have. None. Zero. His spirit, he gives us his spirit and then says, that's self-control. When really, we know it's not. If we are spiritual, if there is control over our tongue, if we are seeing that work in the church, then all credit and glory belongs to God. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll resume our normal study next week. I just really wanted to lay those things on us this evening. So why don't we stand and we'll pray together. Father God, what a gracious thing that I can say, Father God, thank you so much for making me your son, for making us sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk with you, that we would not just say we were in the Spirit, but that we would walk in it that our daily function, our moment-to-moment -moment being, would be known as holy, having been led by your Spirit. Accomplish your work in us, through us. Help us to minister to the world around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.